Coming up in this podcast, Quintus Collapse, Wheatstone's Environmental Conditions, Doric's Chinese Joint Venture, the Wage Cap Battle, Fringe Festival and Land Developers. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, Mark Beyer is away and I'm joined by Business News reporters Katie McDonald and Matt McKenzie. Hi. Hey. Welcome, guys. <laughs> uh, firstly to you, Matt. The most read stories of the past week or so are about the collapse of Sandalwood business Quintus. What is the latest? Well, if you'd bought Quintus shares a year ago at $1.60, you would be pretty unhappy right now because the good people at McGrath Nickel are now receivers. Uh, the company owes $330 million to note holders led by famous uh, US company or equity firm BlackRock. Uh, so the thing that pushed them over the edge is that they've had this put option with uh, David Kempner, which is another sort of financial outfit, for $37 million to for that company to buy sorry, to sell uh, a sandalwood plantation back to Quintus. Right. And so what's happened is they've said, yeah, we'll sell it. And Quintus has said, well, we don't have the money, so we're going to go into voluntary administration. And that happened on the weekend. And then uh, the the creditors came in and said, well, we're going to take you into receivership. Hmm. So there's quite an extensive, been quite an extensive story around this. It's been brewing away for almost a year. You'll remember last year in March that... uh, the U.S. company Glaucus issued this big short sell recommendation saying it was a Ponzi scheme and all the rest of it. Frank Wilson, who'd founded the place, resigned as managing director. Then they, uh, it was revealed in May that they had this contract, and, or sorry, that they'd, they'd uh, lost a contract and that the board wasn't even aware of it. Um, so it's been an ongoing saga, basically. Yeah, right, it has been. And uh, and ironically, it's all happened pretty much immediately after they changed their name to Quintus. <laughs> from uh, TFS, wasn't it? Tropical Forestry Services, it used to be. Mm. Um, yeah, pretty fascinating. Uh, what I find most fascinating about this, the, this, the sort of last part of that story is one of the reasons that TFS and now Quintus survived beyond the length of most of these so-called tax-effective investment firms that had kind of blossomed in Australia between the sort of late 90s and early 2000s was they'd shifted from re- getting retail investors in to buy into these agricultural products and getting um, big fund management, fund institutional mm. money. But it seems like to get that institutional money, they might have had to do deals that have led to bigger problems because lots of little investors don't have put options to sell back at, you know, in one go and act collectively like you know, demand $37 million. So they might have shot themselves in the foot there. Then again, maybe this was happening anyway, and it's a, a troublesome sector. Anyway, uh, look, I followed that his, that sector for a long time, and it used to be blue gum firms, and we pretty much lost all of them. There were quite a lot of wine businesses. People might remember Palandry, which disappeared. It kind of the assets are owned by Three Oceans, but that's not much happening there. And then we saw a few other things like sandalwood, almonds, and uh, olives, none of which really have been successful. I think there's one or two wine businesses left uh, and the rest pretty much disappeared. And even those I don't think exist like like they did, are structured like they were. Well, I will say Mark uh, Beyer actually wrote a very interesting article in our upcoming edition and he's actually spoken to some people that are a little bit more positive um, because what they're trying to do is get some of the sandalwood growers to change the, uh, the responsible entity for, mm-hmm. for the schemes. 
Uh, and one interesting thing I found about this is apparently this sandalwood you can sell it's it's worth two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a hectare or something, so it's much more expensive than the actual value of the land. So they're actually saying there are a few reasons they think why um, BlackRock and others might actually really come to the party on this, and it may not necessarily go the way of some of the other disasters that have happened on the east coast. So. Yeah, right. And and look, Mark's been also writing about there's another sandalwood producer which I think also has some private equity in that there's a battle going on so there might be some possibility of all this some interest in these assets so yeah mm-hmm. well anyway fascinating we'll watch it play out um, now another big news story is the debate around the environmental conditions at Chevron's Wheatstone gas project near Onzo. That's right so earlier this week uh, the new environment minister Stephen Dawson basically directed the EPA to review uh, Wheatstone's uh, emissions and their environmental conditions uh, and Wheatstone have said well we're, fe- we're federally regulated and uh, we're covered under the uh, Australian you know, emissions safeguard mechanism and we're already abating 700,000 tonnes per annum of emissions uh, but the ministers come back and said well it's quite complicated because initially you were going to be, regist- you were going to be regulated under federal legislation uh, and then Colin Barnett said well we won't need state legislation to overrule that, so we'll exempt you from the state legislation. And then the federal laws were repealed in 2014 with the repeal of the carbon tax. Uh, so I guess the minister's trying to get to the bottom as to what exactly the, the situation is in terms of the abatement laws. But uh, Mike Nahan actually came out and said he thought it was a sovereign risk issue to be uh, to be reviewing people's environmental uh, conditions so long after the money's, I mean, it's already been, it's built basically. So mm. an interesting one. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating. I think they've had... Was was the Gorgon project a little bit... Is this all about Wheatstone, or do they have similar discussion around Gorgon at any stage? Um, as I understand, it was this one was just about Wheatstone. But yeah, I right. think long before my time as a, as a business journalist, there was some considerable debate about Gorgon's emissions um, yeah. policy. Uh, and I think it, it, it delayed the... Uh, the final investment decision on the project for, for some time. You would probably right. be better across that. I think, I think you're right, and they, eventually they said they were going to um, put it in, put some of the CO2 in the ground. Um, I, it's interesting, isn't it, where um, you've got a scenario where if this was coal, for instance, you dig the coal up and you ship it and the emissions happen somewhere else mm. and then it's the problem of somewhere else, whereas here you have... Um, gas and to liquefy it there's a certain amount of emissions involved but when it's burned somewhere else cumulatively the emissions used here and the emissions used elsewhere are much lower than mm. using gas uh, using coal sorry so it's a kind of interesting debate isn't it that that that's that that the mitigation the global mitigation of co2 is not kind of taken into account in this mm. um, because of course as a result of uh, our LNG plants WA is a huge uh, CO2 emitter, mm. <laughs> and yet arguably we're reducing by providing that gas. We're reducing global emissions significantly. So I wonder. I presume that'll come into the argument. Well, but you know, it wasn't in the argument when the carbon tax came in. I must admit. Yeah. Well, Chevron has has sort of said that this week. That's been their position. Uh, it's a good point, but I guess there are some people that you know don't necessarily want to pay attention to that to that uh, to that fact. I will just add though. There seems to be a bit of a trend here. I mean, if you invested money in WA, you know, there's people in the last few years we've had this iron ore tax, you know, that people have suggested, and there's this, and then there was the gold royalty changes and all the rest of it. Um, I think the, the sovereign risk question is one probably worth asking. Why do we keep trying to change these things after we've made decisions? 
Yeah, well, it's pretty valid, and I guess that's what happens when you have... Uh, I mean, it's a valid, valid issue. Mm. Uh, it's what happens when you have governments changing and some of them have a greener hue than others. Um, I guess that where you want is some sort of underlying policy where things are set, everyone there is agreement, and that's how it goes, which has been, you're right, quite the, the traditional way until the, the recent... I guess since the mining tax was sought to be imposed in uh, 2010. Hmm. Um, now... Katie, uh, you've unearthed a new joint venture between construction firm Doric and a Chinese group called Wu Yi, if I've got that right. China Wu Yi. China Wu Yi, gotcha. Yes. Uh, what do they plan to do together? So they've entered a 50-50 joint venture to create a new independent company called Wu Yi Doric. Mm -hmm. um, and that will be a major new construction player, you know, locally and nationally. They're aiming to target top-tier projects above 100 million. And what's really interesting is that the relationship's really founded on complementary strategies. So to put it simply, China Wu Yi, they've been eyeing Australia for a number of years. They're about 30 years old. They've got operations all over the world. They're in Asia, they're in um, Africa, they're in North America, they're even in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, arguably, they're a big company. They could have come into Australia probably in their own terms. And then you've got Doric on the other hand, um, you know, a local big construction company that's looking to expand nationally. Mm. Um, you know, they've doubled their project value between 2016 and 2017. It was at 300 and something million in 2016, currently over 700 million. So, you know, looking at them, that would have been tempting for them to go alone as well. But um, I guess both of them saw that they had complementary strategies, complementary values and goals as to what they wanted to do in the industry. Yep. So by China Wu Yi partnering with Doric, they've already got the local knowledge, local networks, um, how to do business, I guess, in WA and Australia broadly. And then you've got Doric looking for someone that's worked on the top tier projects, um, has that expertise in, in design as well as they, they're doing, they do engineering and construction. Um, and you'll remember that Doric tended for um, the new museum project, which is of significant value with Technicus Reunidas, a Spanish firm. That fell through. Um, but they will, they've realised that, you know, to go ahead, they really needed a long-term strategy. So not only will China will you pr provide that expertise, the financial capacity, yeah. but they've also got their own new prefabrication technology, which um, was quite attractive to Doric as well. Because as we know, Australia's got one of the highest costs for construction. If you can prove to your clients that you can deliver a project faster, at a lower cost, and it's an en energy-saving material, then that's another advantage they've got in the market. Yeah, right. There you go. Mm. It does seem so. It sort of neatly fits, and yeah, they can both go and together. do it together. And for both of them, there was some risk in doing it on their own yeah. um, for different reasons. Hmm. Mm. Stars aligned. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, great story. Well, we'll be interested to see how it goes. And mm -hmm. of course, you know, it's difficult. West Australian firms to grow yeah. nationally. It always has been. So well, they've already um, they've said they've already got one project that they they're likely to be successful on. They're not able to disclose yet, right. but um, they've tended for that, and that's Perth, a major Perth project. Okay. And they've also got one in Sydney that they've tended for as well. So be quite you know not long until we find out about right. that. Okay, there's a major project somewhere. Good yeah. to hear. <laughs> uh, and locally, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Um, now, uh, Matt, you've been looking at the industrial relations scene and one notable area you've focused on is the wage gap battle, if I get my words out there, uh, and how that's being fought. So, yeah, 
the state government's doing this review of the IR system in our in WA. We've got our own sort of system on top of the federal one. One of the big things that's come up is we've got the highest wage gap between men and women anywhere, oh sorry, of any state in Australia. It's about 23%. It's fallen a little bit in the last couple of years, but it's still very high. Uh, and the trade union movement has suggested that their solution to this is this concept called equal remuneration orders, uh, which will give sort of courts more expansive power to to lift wages in particular industry and to, in particular industries or you know where women are underpaid. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is is they're saying there should be no male comparator um, when they make a decision. So to give you an example, about ten years ago this was done in Queensland with the dental assistants. They got an eleven percent rise over two years. Uh, and part of that rise was based on the the argument that because it was a female-dominated industry, that the, they that the industry had been undervalued historically. Basically, uh, on the flip side, the Chamber of Commerce and Industry is saying, well, let's not overregulate this. Let's instead support private companies and groups like the CEOs for Gender Equity, which I believe you've been part of, um, mm. uh, and organisations yeah. like that to try and uh, encourage basically businesses themselves to lead change uh, and support greater bargaining powers uh, for particular industries. So, so when we say uh, no male comparator, and you gave the example of dental technicians, so mm. arguably it's a sector where not many men work in, so therefore we can't say men get paid 20% above the women and therefore, how do you do it? So the argument is that you look at the, the example of the dental technician and you say, uh, what are the other industries where there's a similar amount of uh, skill or training required to get a position and what do they get paid? Mm -hmm. And so that's how they work it out. Now I don't know what the equivalent would be for a dental assistant, but um, you can imagine it might be, uh, for example, uh, a lawyer's... Uh, uh, sorry, what's the, what's the term for the, for the people that work in the, in the law firms that are not actual like lawyers? Paralegals. Paralegals. Yeah. 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 So that might be an example. Yeah, okay. Now. Um, now, I guess, first of all, uh, that's an interesting proposition as an employer because suddenly a whole industry could jump up and traditionally an industry perhaps that we're been seen as cost-effective to employ people. Uh, I think, it, did you give a number there that happened in Queensland? So it was 11% over two years. Yeah, right, okay, so it's be pretty significant pay wage rises. Um, but then how significant is this? We're talking about the WA Industrial Relations Commission. Mm. They represent, um, they, they, they cover firms or, or businesses that aren't corporations, correct? So so the, it's partnerships, which would include dental partnerships, presumably, <laughs> uh, and and other non-incorporated businesses, It's about 25% of the state's workforce. Right. But if you're looking at the private sector exclusively, it'd probably be about an eighth. And actually, that's one of the CCI's arguments. They're saying, well, in terms of the private sector, only one in eight people is covered under this WA IRC mm. system. So why would you want to make all these regulatory moves that are just going to bind people in red tape when you're not going to have a very significant impact on, on yeah. actual wages? Yeah, right. So because what we don't have significant industries that are not corporatized or not under Australian corporations law that have lots of women employed, presumably. Well, that would be the argument, I imagine. Mm. Okay. So then what, it covers government? It does. That would probably be the largest bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, in CCI's submission, I think their sort of point was, well, you know, the government can lead change in its own house first and foremost without necessarily needing to change the, uh, without needing to change the IR laws. They, could, they can, you know, go to their own effort. To... Right. While I'm on this, though, just a couple of other interesting submissions. One of them was that trade unions were saying we should be able to have inspection powers over 
people who are not employees, sorry, people who are not unionised employees to be able to look at their records to see if they've been underpaid. So unions basically saying, even if you're not a member, we want to be able to access your, your records. I found that very interesting. Fair enough. Um, now, uh, Katie, the very successful Fringe Festival is kicking off. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's interesting for our listeners to know about that festival? Fringe World Festival is probably one of the most successful events in WA. It's run by a group called Art Rage. They're a not-for-profit business. Um, they're currently ranked third on our BNIQ search engine list of arts and cultural organisations, and that's for a pretty good reason in the fact that a lot of their revenue actually comes from ticket sales. Mm-hmm. They, you know, up until I guess arguably this year and, and last year, they receive little to no um, state government funding, which is quite interesting in comparison to a lot of the other organisations. Um, you know, the art gallery, the museum, um, they all get quite a significant amount of funding from government. Whereas Outrage makes up that difference by just selling a lot of tickets and getting a lot of people coming to Fringe. Yep. Um, I think they, they made over $10 million in box office um, last year, which is you know, pretty successful. Mm. So I think by world standards it's quite successful. Yeah, they're actually one of the biggest fringe festivals in the world mm. as well. Um, so really impressive team there. Marcus Canning, CEO, he's a past 40 under 40 winner. He's very passionate about the arts and passionate about getting it out there to as many people as possible, yeah, as many right. demographics as possible. They've got a really good spread. They've got, you know, an older generation. They've got young people. You really can't pick it when you go to a fringe show. You know, there's people of all ages in the audience. I agree. I go to lots of them myself. Yes. <laughs> and they've won some sponsorship deals as well, so they're, they're doing well in that yeah. other part of the, the private sector. Yeah, part. so it is, it's great because, you know, they kicked off with little to nothing and, you know, going off their own bat. Uh, they've now got principal partners, Woodside, Gage Roads. Gage Roads have just released a new brew um, that, you know, part of that sale is going to go to um, the Art Rage Fund for Artists, which is great. And the City of Perth is up to their sponsorship this year, so they gave them 100000 last year, and this year they've announced that they're going to give them $900,000 over three years. So wow. I think people are starting to realise that Fringe is a good thing, and it's not just for showcasing the arts. Um, a lot of, you know, anecdotally, I guess it's something that's really hard to measure, um, you know, the impact of arts, but a lot of the local businesses... I don't know if you've been around on a Friday night when Fringe is going. It is so hard to get into a restaurant, and I'm sure that's all you know a byproduct of people just more people coming into the city, more people coming into Northbridge. Yeah, and good for Perth. All yeah. about growing Perth as well. Mm. You know, which is good for the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if that's a. I'm going to use some cliches. Is that rags to riches, or is that <laughs> success building success, breeding building, success, breeding so, success? Yeah. So. Um, now, uh, just a, a shift back to something uh, possibly, well, I guess a bit more serious in a way. Finally, um, one of our big special reports is land developers. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you found in that field? Well, sentiment is shifting, which is nice, because it's no secret that, you know, across property, people have felt pain over the last few years. And, you know, whether it's residential builders or even the office market, everybody's been in a tough time. It's no, you know, no secret. Mm. However... Um, A lot of the land developers I've spoken to over the last two weeks have said, you know, we think, we do think the tide is turning and we are expecting a brighter 2018. Now, unfortunately, the quarter four data isn't out yet. So, you know, going off September um, Q3 data, it's it's still bad. So for the sector. Mm. So basically, residential lot sales were down 17% um, in the 12 months to September. The number of lots under construction, according to UDIA figures up until that, Um, third quarter were the lowest numbers 
um, over a 10-year comparison mm. as well. And I guess that's no surprise after coming off a high of 2015, um, you know, things have started to really slow down. Yep. But anecdotally, at least, uh, you know, there's been a few developers that have said they've they've seen signs of improvement. So you've got Fraser's Property Australia. They've got a development down at Port Coogee. Um, and within their estate there, they've got uh, a parcel of land they've called Sea Spray Island. Now, they released that to the market in 2008. Sorry, is it actually an island? It's a man-made island, gotcha. yes. Okay, just checking. <laughs> it is connected. You know, people can get there. But, it. yes, it's a man-made island. Um, they released lots there in 2008. And they sold um, more than half, just over half of the 30 lots. But they decided to take the remaining off the market three years ago, mm -hmm. um, just, you know, after, I guess, the peak of... Uh, of, yeah, of the market at that time. Um, and they were feeling the pressures, so they took the lots off the market. But then last year, after a strategic review, they made a, a decision to put those lots back on the market after also taking some of those, resubdividing them, making them smaller. So they still had you know, lots at the 700 square metre range, and then okay. they subdivided those to the 300 square yeah, metre right. range. So they repurposed them. Yeah, because they were listening to market feedback. Um, you know, a lot of affordability, I guess, is an issue. People, mm. you know, um, there's not enough, there's not as much money as there once was. And they ended up selling out of all 13 lots within six months. So they released them back to the market in June last year. And, right. you know, Stuart Gardner, um, the general manager for Residential WA, was saying, you know, that's a pretty good sign for us and that's given us confidence so we're now going to release more stock onto the market. Okay. So that's one, you know, good sign. And then you've got Cedar Woods, um, State Manager WA, Ben Rosser, saying, you know, that he's noticed an up upswing, as he'd call it, a slight upswing <laughs> over the past five months. Um, he said that he's actually been able to increase prices um, across two locations, which is something he said people would have laughed at him if he had said that this time 12 months ago. Yeah, right. So he's he's saying, you know, things are looking good. So Good. Well, they're good indicators and, uh, you know, it is a leading indicator because land, when you buy land, what are you going to do? You're going to put a house on it that's going to take a year, 18 mm. months, longer maybe to build. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of capital tied up for nothing yeah. mm. uh, and you've got to anticipate, you, you know, you've got a need to go there. Mm. It's, it, it's, you know, typically development lands on the fringe, not all of it. But yeah. Well, there's so a, lot of, a lot happening in the infill space too, like Landcorp's got right. quite a lot of um, active developments at the moment. They've got uh, Parkside Walk in Jollymont, which they announced last week. They'd sold one of the lots to um, TIG Properties, which are going to develop some high-end apartments there. And that's on a site that sat vacant for 20 years. It mm. used to be the um, nursery, the city's nursery. Yeah, I think it was a depot, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, it hasn't been operated since 1994, so why not? You know, mm. that land sitting there, why not develop it? But I think, you know, Perth needs both. Not everybody wants to live in an apartment, oh. and some people would like to live near the coast. Not everyone can afford that near Cottesloe. Hence why people are going further north and further south. Yep. So it's one of those interesting things managing infill and greenfield. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out when the market starts picking up. Good to see some action there. Very good for the economy. Um, thank you, Katie and Matt. Um, we're working out the details of our 40 Under 40 Awards Night, and as usual, it'll be spectacular. If you want to mix it with WA's up-and-coming business leaders, why not come to the event in March? Go to 40under40.com.au and buy tickets or give us a call at Business News to find out more. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud. <laughs>